Hello, that is me, Tony Wilson, and welcome to the second episode of the Speak Ola podcast. Here in Australia, at least, some of the restrictions relating to COVID-19 are easing somewhat, and we're about to have a return to AFL football on June the 11th. So I thought to whet the appetite, I might feature a famous AFL speech this week. It's Alan Jeans and his pay the price speech, which relates to a pair of shoes. And he gave the speech at halftime in the 1989 grand final. And it's a speech that's very dear to my heart in the sense that I've just spent six months writing about the 1989 grand final for a book called 1989, The Great Grand Final. To give you some context on Alan Jeans, he's an Australian Football Hall of Fame inducted coach who lived between 1933 and 2011. He actually became a coach at a very young age of just 27, and that was at the St Kilda Football Club where he spent 16 years. And he had immediate success in his first season of 1961. He took the Saints to their first final series since 1939. And then just a few years later in 1965, he takes them to a grand final, their first since 1913. And in 66, I mean, that's just a very famous day in St Kilda history. The only day where the Saints got home and won a VFL or AFL premiership. In 1980, he was appointed at Hawthorne. He'd been out of the game for a couple of years at that point and replaced David Parkin. Um, he was not favoured to get the job. It looked like Peter Hudson was going to get it. But apparently, Jeans was only paid less than $20,000 and uh, one of the great investments because he went on a winning spree. The Hawks made the finals in 1982 and then won the premiership in 83 and played in grand finals from 1983 to 1989. Seven consecutive grand finals, of which they won four and lost three. Jeans himself missed out on the 1988 premiership because he suffered a brain aneurysm at the end of 1987. And so Alan Joyce coached that flag, and it was in 1989 that Jeans was making his return. He was a man on a mission He'd twice missed out on back-to-back flags earlier in the decade and was hell-bent on making amends in 1989. It's an incredible record. He coached over a 31-year span with a winning percentage of 62%. Coach of the Team of the Century at St Kilda and six grand finals for three premierships at Hawthorne. And his winning percentage at Hawthorne stands at a staggering 71%. So that's Alan Jeans and his incredible record. But he was an equally incredible person. He spent his working life as a policeman at the Cheltenham Police Station and he just had such natural skills as a speaker. I had the privilege of hearing Alan Jeans on many occasions, never as a senior player, unfortunately. And he filled the room with his voice and his charisma and his personality. I never got to hear him under the blowtorch of a senior match day address. But some of his performances became the stuff of folklore, including the most famous of all, the pay the price speech in the 1989 grand final. There's no transcript or audio recording, but in writing the 1989 grand final book, all of the Hawthorne players I spoke to mentioned the speech. And so this is going to be a little audio documentary about a boy, a pair of shoes and paying the price. The first voice you'll hear is that of Robert DiPier Domenico, Brownlow medalist, the Big Dipper. 
His own legend reigns large over grand final day 1989. And he shares his memories of Jeans as a speaker. Don't believe that bullshit in the public. Oh, you know, on a Sunday morning, wow, the boys played well yesterday. It's not my team, you know. I can't do anything. I'm just the coach and, you know, and, uh, you know, we were disappointed and whatever. You never used to throw mud at anyone. Oh, but behind closed doors, <laughs> fucking shit yourself. Like, you know, he raised his voice at the time. The, thing, the beauty about Gene, you know, and I thought he learned himself as well, that he just knew how to handle people, you know. He might say that. To Gary, you know, Bacchanal, one of our greats, you know. Now, this is saying, we can't win without you, right? Or you might say with Dermot and I, you know, you two, eh? Put your bloody finger out and, you know, he'll get us going in a different way. You know, he'll tell Bucky, he'll say that we can't win without you, the cotton wool type. With us, he'll be fucking hit with a stick and, you know, yeah, we'll fucking prove you and wrong and that sort of stuff. Next, it's Dean Anderson, just a kid out of Caulfield Grammar in the late 80s and impressed by the power and presence of his coach. Oh, he's a great orator. His range was, you know, very broad. I remember once going to Russell Green's, he had a party for his 300th game and Yabby gave the speech and we'd, we were having a few cans, carrying on and stuff, and then he just, just sort of started speaking softly as a speech for Greeny and then all of a sudden he started roaring. Um, they certainly captured your attention. Um, so very captivating, um, very influential, and as I said earlier, he's, he was like a he's very likable. So he's a, he was certainly a coach that you the, the, he's a coach that you wanted to play for. There was no bigger name in eighties footy than Dermot Brereton, Hawthorne star centre half forward, the hero of eighty nine, and his relationship with Alan Jeans began way back in nineteen eighty as they were both getting started at the club, and he listened to him speak practically every day of the decade that followed. If he had you in the gun and he was yelling at you, he was terrifying. I knew he wasn't going to physically do anything to me, but I was scared of him. Can you give an example of how he'd do it? He could be cutting in some ways with humour. He could be straight out terrifying. For a bloke with, you know, big ears and no hair on his head, he was a charismatic man. Yeah, you could just picture him in the in the amphitheatre of the Coliseum 2,000 years ago. He would have been the, the bloke standing in the middle of the amphitheatre saying, the next bout. <laughs> yeah. And you would have heard a pin drop. John Kennedy isn't just a famous name in speeches. It's a famous name at Hawthorne, perhaps the most famous name. And John Kennedy Sr.'s son is John Kennedy Jr., who played in that fateful game. He also delivered Alan Jeans' eulogy in 2011. He was able to just lower his voice when he had to and raise it when he needed to and then move from player to player without without saying much. You know, He could just uh, look at you and, and you'd understand what he's saying or what he's thinking. So he was very good at that. About it. And he had some difficult individuals to deal with, you know, not necessarily that day, but as a general rule, some footy clubs, they have very um, flamboyant individuals, some conservative type players. So he had a whole mix of, of, these, of these individuals that he had to work with. And the ones that were, were out there and uh, you know, pushing the boundaries, it was, it was always described as a boxing ring. He let them push the ropes of the ring out to a certain degree, and if they went over the edge of those rings or fell out the th- side, he'd certainly pull them back into line pretty quickly. But he did allow uh, a bit of flair amongst those players that had that in them. Defender Peter Schwab missed the 1989 grand final, 
suspended for the first time in nearly 150 games. A huge disappointment. But he was a Jeans favourite and he eventually became a senior coach at Hawthorne himself. Alan is a great storyteller. But that was one of his great qualities, to use metaphor and stories to get a point across. And he had a great way of telling a story. Now, people look at that nowadays and go, oh, that has nothing to do with strategy or systems and all that. Well, no, but it had a lot to do with his ability to inspire and get to the group who'd had for a long time. Do you uh, remember any of the Gene's stories that he told? Oh, he told a lot. Like, you know, he told, you know, the boy, you know, just a little antidote, the boy in the mountain. If you see the boy on top of the mountain, you know, he didn't get flown there. He had to climb there, um, you know, and he tell the one of sausages about footy, the basics of footy. You know, you can fry them, bake them, scramble them, curry them, whatever you do, they're still sausages. So he had a little saying for just about everything. Jill Normsmith medalist and back pocket Gary Ayres remembers the sausages analogies too. Alan had a lot of stories that related to some very fundamentally based philosophies or principles and uh, the time where he used to say they're just like sausages and he could be talking about the presentation and of course you can curry them, you can fry them, you can boil them but they're still just sausages and again the, the day he did confuse us was when he said you can also scramble them so we just but out of respect you'd never really say too much because you just didn't want to disappoint him and I think that was a big thing with the way I played with Alan was I just didn't want to disappoint him with a bad performance. Dermot explains some of the rationale for this. Jeansy had this this little fable he used to talk about he'd say every week I've got to say the same thing the difficult for me is to package up the comment differently so that I keep your attention and you absorb what I'm saying each and every week. It's the same message. Chris Langford was the team's legendary fullback, a 300-game Team of the Century defender who was tasked with stopping a rampaging Gary Ablett on grand final day 1989. There were three or four of us in the, in, over the years who would be in the rooms and you'd be looking at the whiteboard or the chalkboard or whatever and then you'd quickly glance to the right, the left, whatever. You'd see them, they're looking at you and yes, you you quickly look away because otherwise you're going to break out laughing because he would come up, he would butcher metaphors and, you know, the English language would be, you know, in tatters. And he'd come along with all sorts of ideas. Yeah, I was watching the tennis last night and Wimbledon and the tennis players do this. And you can't do that in football. So he'd, he'd always come up with a little story about tennis or dinosaurs or the crossroads and the sign, you know, or the, or the, the shoes or whatever it was. But some blokes, would be eyes on stalks, they'd just be loving it. They'd love that rah-rah sort of pep talk and so on. And some of us would be slightly tongue-in-cheek with a bit of a wry smile, trying not to break out laughing. But either which way, it was all good and he was a good motivator. And it, at the end of it, he'd go around the block with this funny storytelling metaphor and then he'd come back to footy and the punchline was always a ripper. Here's John Kennedy again. It's sometimes hard, even at the even in the most uh, serious situations, to keep a straight face when when Al made a mistake. Jeansy made a bit of a blue, but he it was a wet day and we weren't going so well. And uh, you know, he sort of made the comment that if you don't change your uh, your ways in the wet, it's like an animal. You know, you become distinct and he meant to say extinct you know <laughs> you wouldn't want to look sideways because someone we've all picked it up but no one says it and all keep their heads down you know this is peter schwab again on his coach's rare ability to balance criticism and humor so yabby had that great ability to sort of 
tell your stuff and it'd get out because you actually deep down thought it was funny. One is a second semi, playing North Melbourne in 83 when I'm hoping that if I play well and we win, I'm in a grand final, first grand final. So, you know, that's a great moment in your life. So I'm a bit nervous and I'm thinking, oh, you know, just got to play well, got to play well. So just before we go down the race to get on the ground, he goes to me, calls me over, and I think, oh, he's going to be a last-minute word of wisdom. And he looks at me and he goes, listen, get it into your head. You're not a real good player. (laughs) But it's good psychology because my attitude was, you know, I'll prove you wrong, I'll show you, you know. Uh, But, you know, you have the phone calls every Friday night. One night it was North Melbourne again, rings me up, talking away. And then he goes, I've got a job for you. I said, oh, yeah, I don't think you can do it. (laughs) So I go, yeah, what is it? I I need you to play in Wayne Schimmelbush. He's a real good player. You're not that good. (laughs) I don't care if you don't get a kick as long as he doesn't get a kick. So we play North and they beat us this day. And Schimmelbush cuts me up, but he could play. So I think he kicked three and had about 30 and... Yeah, he goes, oh, son, you know. He said, you couldn't do the job. I said, well, you said it would be a hard job. I know, I didn't think it would be that hard, you know. <laughs> and, I, and then I was a bit smart and I said, oh, listen, I, I kept one end of the bargain up, yeah. And he goes, what's that? And I said, you know how you said it didn't matter if I didn't get a kick? <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah. Which brings us to the 1989 grand final itself. I've immersed myself in this game for six months writing the book and it's an absolute classic. It has brutality, brilliance, a constant flow of goals, controversy, elegance, skill, violence, passion. But here we're focusing on one speech. At halftime, Hawthorne had a comfortable lead, 36 points, but all was not well. Many of its star players were hurt. It had been a brutal and tiring contest, as John Kennedy explains. Certainly at halftime, when a lot of the heads were down because we were in a bit of strife in terms of the injuries, we're thinking, well, how are we going to keep going with this? Because we were pretty exhausted. We'd sort of run pretty hard and, and we got to half-time. In, and we were, we were up, I think, um, with a good lead, but we had a few injuries. And the concern was whether we can get these blokes through uh, for the rest of the game. And so the shoes one was just something that, I don't know, Yabby just pulled it out of that period of time. And, and it was the way he presented more than anything else, the way he presented it and his, his ability to raise and lower his voice which made the difference in the speech. It doesn't sound like much when you just talk about it as a pair of shoes and the lady didn't want to pay the price, you know. But when he told it, it was told with the the, the crescendo when it needed to be and, and in his quiet tones when it when alternatively. So it had an impact because we went out and we were sort of raring to go again. It was almost like we were going out in the first quarter again. He got us back to where where we should have been and that was that we, we've got it, we can win this game. Dipper liked to sit at the front for a yabby address, just so that the coach knew that he was there, keen and ready to go. But on this occasion, he was in trouble. An Abbott collision meant that he'd broken a rib and punctured a lung, a pneumothorax, it's called. And adding to his medical woes was the fact that air was leaking from his lung, called a subcutaneous emphysema, which meant that Dipper was a long way from feeling 100%. He hid at the back of the room, not wanting his coach to know that he was feeling weak. What I remember about the speech was the fact of the way that Yabby said about it because I wasn't all there, but I still remember thinking, what's he fucking going on about here? Because you know, I've never heard of it before. A boy goes to buy a pair of shoes for a wedding. Go, what the, does he fucking know where we're at? Is this brain hemorrhage coming out? Gary Ayres was on a similar wavelength. 
And we're all thinking, maybe he's got his brain aneurysm back. He's telling us on grand final day, we're going to go out and hopefully win a uh, back-to-back premiership that this kid who goes in is going to buy a pair of shoes. Dermot's famous for his jeans impressions, and he explains the pay-the-price story as well as any. Dermot says it was an allegory born of the coach's own childhood in the small country town of Finlay, New South Wales, around the time of World War II. Out came the story of the boy himself, who saved up his money to get the best pair of shoes for a young boy that he was living in the country. And when he got to the shop, he decided to go for the cheaper pair of shoes and pocket some of the rest of the money he'd saved. And he said several months later, the shoes, the soles started falling off and he said he wished he had paid the right price. He said, you've got to pay the price today. As I said, he was very charismatic. And the way he was able to forcefully deliver that, I mean... We were looking at him and the veins are bulging in his neck and the projection of the voice. And you think, this bloke had an aneurysm 12 months ago, almost to the day. But you were looking at him thinking, God, this is, you know, this is everything to him. This is serious. But the wonderful thing about the parable is, is that normally, I mean, the, the point is magnificent, but really who cares if your <laughs> shoes ran out a little bit earlier? This is where you're the product of a different era. So you and I just go and buy a new pair. Whereas Jeansy, living in Finlay, that pair of shoes he wore every day, there's no other pair of shoes in the closet. That was the only shoes he had for the entire day. But John Kennedy Jr. isn't so sure that Jeans was the little boy in the story. No, no, no. It was just the old, it was a lady who had a young boy. He wanted the expensive pair, you know, the really nice pair. But she didn't want to pay that. She wanted to give him the shit pair. It would only last a year, and she'd be going to buy another pair the year after, where it was a really good pair the kid wanted. would have probably last five years. And so she paid the price. She probably would have got the ni- He would have got the nice pair. Everyone would have been happy. Except <laughs> It's a ridiculous story when you think about it, but it's just the way he presented it. It's silly, isn't it, when you think about it? But the way he presented it, you know, that we had to pay the price today because there's no tomorrow, you know. But whatever the merits of the shoes story, what everyone agrees on is that it was Jeans's manner that was his genius, that he had projection volume variation, the rule of threes, amplification, crescendo, so many of the attributes of what makes a good and compelling speaker. That he just had it when it came to presence and delivery. This is spare parts small man Chris Whitman, who had to step up in the absence of John Platten and play an important midfield role. Powerful story, but it's also the way Jeansy with his baritones and his voice. Jeansy was trying to change it up to get us motivated. So he was always looking for new ways, new stories. And it wasn't so much the story for me, it resonated. It was his voice, it was his baritones. It was so vivid and so powerful. Here's Gary Ayres. To me, the way Yab could get us really motivated. I remember that day I was crying and tears streaming down my eyes as I'm walking down the race because it was just such a motivating factor and footy's emotional and here you are, you're a grown man and of course you've got you know, tears streaming down your eyes because Yab could just fire you up with this amazing voice and he could bring you up to a level and then he would just trail off with his voice and it was just like you wanted more and more and more and I remember the first night that he spoke at the social club back in Glen Ferry. And I then knew that I wanted to play for this guy. I wanted to play as much footy under him as I could. And that, for me as a young boy, was um, so motivating to, to have someone like him there. 
you've got a chance right now to pay the price at the right time. Don't go through the rest of your life wishing that you had a paid the right price here today. Half time, pay the price, the shoes. Yeah, it was, it was a good one. It was a good one. But the way he told it, his passion, he fanning and blew a foofaval. He just went nuts. He went nuts. As I said, the start of the game, he was absolutely obsessed back to back. This is the third time, Lucky, you've got to do it. You know, it had been going on all year and it just basically reached its crescendo before the game. Thought, this is it, right? We're ready to go. And on the other hand, most of the time we're told, you know, before the game, don't get over the top. Just keep your emotions in check. Don't get excited. You know, your performance will decline if you get too excited and too hyped. So we're telling ourselves, keep it calm, keep it calm. And Yabby's out there. He went nuts at halftime. And I remember I was standing not far from, I think, next to Peter Curran. And it was literally just as we we're about to go out. And he's pay the, pay, and he said it six times. And then he said it another six times. And then he's still going. And he's, every time he says it, he's getting more and more elevated with his, his his emotions and his noise and his veins are bulging out of his neck and his forehead and i know seriously pete get ready to catch him he's about to have a stroke he's about to cark it you know i've never seen i've never seen anyone that animated that emotional that angry that loud anywhere anytime and it, it just kept going up and up and up and up the dial was beyond the red it was just unbelievable so you sort of think, well, okay, well, you've said it. That's enough. That's enough. No, stop. You calm down. You know, it was like he was going to go. He, so it it wasn't just like a good rev up talk. It wasn't just like a big halftime tirade. It was not even next level. It was several levels above next level. It was memorable, and I'm sure everyone would say the same thing. So, do you reckon he overcooked it? It didn't was slightly counterproductive. No, I don't think he overcooked it. We needed it physically. It wasn't going to make any difference. It was about us. Um, just absolutely going to war for that last bit. Here's half-forward Dean Anderson again, the man who kicked Hawthorne's 21st and last goal in the 1989 grand final. 30 years ago, so much is blurry, but the halftime speech is not blurry. There are so many coaches' addresses you just don't remember. But um, there are quite a few of Yabby's I do remember, and it's just the way he delivered them. You know, it's the Vince Lombardi stuff, you know, that sort of pay the price you know, make sure you get the right pair of shoes and sort of stuff. Don't choose the cheap ones who you're going to be uncomfortable and make sure. And then he sort of converted that into pay the price for the ultimate success. You know, we got to really have to dig in here. It was probably, in my time, the best halftime address. There's a, a DVD that came out quite a few years ago and it's actually got all the great coaches looking down the barrel of a camera as if they're going out on grand final day. And um, obviously I hadn't heard Alan talk for a fair while, of course. And there was Ron Barassi and John Kennedy Sr. And of course, Alan Jeans and Tommy Hafey. And even him looking down the barrel of the camera and saying the things that he said, the hairs on the back of my neck certainly stood up that time when I first saw it. And he hadn't been coaching since 1992, I think, when he finished at Richmond. What you got to do if you're going to win this game today, not only you got to play it moment by moment, contest by contest, quarter by quarter, and regardless of what the scores is, do not accept what's going on. When the occasions come, lead by example, 
Lift yourself and win the contest. That will win the game. In every game, there is going to be a crossroad. And when you get to that crossroad, you either step up or you step down. It is in entitled all up to you. You make the decision, not me. What was the uh, reaction from Jeans uh, to you after the game? Yeah, he talked to me after that game. He, he, meant, he talked to the team and he obviously said, what you've done here today is such a great thing. Um, you have this for the rest of your life. All those things which, you know, uh, signpost the victory. He spoke to me just briefly and it would have been... When did, when did he pass away? Three, four years ago? Yes, probably 25 to 30 years later he said it to me again. Just he put his arm around me and he actually put his forehead onto my shoulder and he put his arm around he put his arm around the back of my neck and he's and he said to me, I just want to thank you, son. I want to thank you for what you did today. And that meant the world to me. I had a phone call with him uh, two days before he died because uh, I wanted to go out and see him. And anyway, I rang him uh, just to make sure that everything was all right for me to go out and see him. But he said the doctors had said no, that uh, he wasn't having any any visitors as such. It was only family. And we chatted for probably 15 minutes and it got really, really tough because he knew and I knew that I would never speak to him again and more than likely not see him again and it got to a point where the words and I remember as clear as yesterday and I said to him look for everything that I've ever achieved in footy coaching and playing I just owe it all pretty much to you and his comments back to me was no I owe everything to you and that was the mark of Alan Jeans and I got off the phone after I said goodbye and I knew it was the last time I'd say goodbye to him and I started crying because I knew then that that was um, it would only be whatever period of time Um, and just how when when you're in that position that he still was mentally alert and switched on and could say something like that when he knew he didn't have that much more time to go. John Kennedy remembers his last chat with Alan Jeans too. It was in June 2011, a couple of weeks before Jeans died. Jeans requested that Kennedy deliver his eulogy, which Kennedy thinks was a political decision because he was president of the Hawthorne Past Players Association, so Jeans wouldn't be seen to be playing favourites. The speech is a beauty. It's got humour, anecdotes, love and respect for this great old man of the St Kilda and Hawthorne football clubs. There's no audio recording of the actual eulogy, so I asked John Kennedy to read out the last few paragraphs of the eulogy. Yeah, always used to say that uh, myths and images are built up about people, that some people and some things are not always as they seem. There was no myth about Alan. Certainly an image has been created him of, a, of him publicly, but for those of us that were lucky enough to have known him well, he was a real deal. A man of great character, integrity and honesty. A man who did things the way he wanted. 
He was not influenced by stereotypes that were often portrayed in the media. He did not fall into that trap, but dealt with us all, players, club and media in his own way. I suspect that as time passes and the AFL football and, and the Hawthorne Football Club continues to evolve, my generation will be talking of this man in similar tones to how my father's generation talk of Norm Smith in revered terms. Arguably, this is already occurring with Ellen. It's difficult to put into words the varying degrees of influence that Yab had on our lives. But in reflecting over the years, it would be fair to say that for most of my teammates and I, he, outside of our parents, had the biggest influence on the way we operate today. Men such as Ellen Jeans are a rarity and we will be forever grateful that we were in the right place at the right time to enjoy one of the greatest characters that we will probably ever meet. He leaves us all with wonderful memories and achievements. So that's pretty much sums him up, I reckon, um, as a person and uh, a coach, a father, grandfather uh, and a, a friend.